Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, October the 7th, uh, 2023, on a unseasonably warm day in San Francisco. We usually have a couple of very hot days in the year, and one of them is today. Uh, a couple of months ago, we did a very interesting show with the CIA analyst Lena Andrews and writer on American servicemen who helped the country win the Second World War. Uh, she has a book out called Valiant Women. We've also done some shows on fictional women uh, involved in wars and military exercises, one with uh, Christine Wales imagining 007, James Bond, as a woman. Uh, but today's show is focused on real women uh, doing quite heroic things, not fighting in wars, but discovering space. Lauren Grush is a space reporter. She currently works with Bloomberg. She's worked with a number of other organizations. She has a wonderful new book out, The Six, The Untold Story of Americans of America's First Women Astronauts. Uh, and she's also always been fascinated with space. Uh, she says in her bio uh, that she's the daughter of two NASA engineers. She's joining us from Austin, Texas. Congratulations, Lauren, on the new book. It's already quite a hit. Thank uh, you. Tell, tell me a little bit about growing up as the daughter of two uh, NASA scientists. That must have been quite a, excuse the uh, the uh, the joke here, uh, quite a trip. <laughs> well, uh, the, the way I describe it, so I, I grew up outside of Houston, Texas. Obviously, my parents worked on the space shuttle program. Um, but I'll be honest, you know, it took a while to really understand how unique and special that was. So I grew up in this small town called Friendswood, Texas, and it's right next to Johnson Space Center. And it was actually not very strange to have parents who worked for the space program because of our proximity to JSC. You know, most of the kids that I went to school with also had parents or a parent who worked at JSC and um, so it was a very big part of our community, obviously being next door. And then also, I don't know if you remember being a teenager, but uh, <laughs> I certainly, there was a time where I kind of wanted to separate myself from what my parents did, didn't think space was very cool. You know, they it was very nerdy to me, the discussions we had at, um, at the dinner table, you know, because they were talking about subsystems and components and all of these intricate technologies that I had no real understanding of. And so um, I really kind of strayed away from space for, for a while growing up. It wasn't until I left and moved away that I had a newfound appreciation for it. I would tell people that I grew up, you know, um, with NASA parents and seeing the looks on their faces and how interested they were and that really kind of gave me a new perspective on that on the childhood. But yeah, it was pretty it was pretty common to, you know, be near astronauts, um, rocket scientists, all you know, all all of that was very much, you know, a, a big part of my life growing up. As I said, you now are the space correspondent for Bloomberg. You work for The Verge. Uh, you were the senior science reporter. Have you experienced any 
I wouldn't say discrimination, but interesting pushback as a female journalist on space? Not, not as much discrimination so much as uh, just feeling outnumbered. So it is still very much a male dominated industry, both space and reporting on space. So that was very intimidating when I first got into the field, just not seeing a lot of people that I felt like I could relate to. Um, you know, and there have been some issues here and there. I do remember my first, uh, my first time covering a launch in person at, in Florida at KSC. You know, I think I was one of like a handful of women in the room and I wore this blouse to the press room and this guy made a comment about how how I looked and you know it was just it was I wanted to run out of the room screaming and uh but I didn't and it's taken a lot of energy not to do that a lot of the time but uh as I've reported on space over time I've really found quite a few women in the field who are just fantastic. And we kind of had that shared camaraderie from being women space reporters. And that's been a really fulfilling part of this experience. And I would say also, you know, it can be difficult sometimes. I feel like men relate to other men in the industry. And so, you know, they might feel more comfortable talking to a male reporter. That's not stuff I can, there's no instances I can really point out to, but I do feel like there is uh, an extra level of work sometimes that women need to do to to stay in this industry just because it does feel like it's not built for us sometimes. Yeah, uh, Lauren, I, I'm sure I'm not the first or the last person to note the, the phallic imagery in space travel and in the construction of rockets. Even the cover of your book uh, suggests that in some ways. Is this a boy's game? Is this you know, if, if, if Freud was still around, do you think he might analyze space travel as space travel and the design of rockets as uh, some sort of sexual, male <laughs> sexual repression? Um, I'm sure there he could. Um, you know, the reason rockets are shaped the way they are is because of the aerodynamic nature that they need to be in order to, to pierce through the atmosphere and break free of Earth's gravity. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say that has anything to do with it being a boys game. I'll just say that from the very beginning, you know, men were much more encouraged to go into space and engineering and rocketry. And it has been, you know, very much not encouraged from the beginning. Women were not encouraged to go into this kind of field. And so catching up since then and making it feel like a safe place for women and encouraging women to go into STEM fields like this one has just been, you know, it's been an uphill battle because like I said, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like a safe space all the time for women. Yeah, it tracks a certain kind of man. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Ashley Vance. I think he actually is based in Texas too. Yep, I know uh, Ashley he, well. He's also yeah. a colleague at Bloomberg. <laughs> right, and he has a new book out, uh, When the Heavens Went on Sale, The Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Space Within Reach. Of course, he's also the biographer of Elon Musk. Um, are the kinds of people that, my, uh, that, that Ashley Vance writes about in his new book, they, they, they mostly tend to be male, don't they? Yeah, and that's kind of par for the course. Like I said, when it comes to the space industry, most CEOs are male. Um, obviously, there are a few exceptions. You know, we, we point out Gwen Shotwell, who's the 
the president and of SpaceX and kind of Elon Musk's right-hand woman. So obviously there are plenty of women kind of moving up in uh, moving up along the ranks. But yes, most of the people I speak to in the industry, at least when it comes to the higher ups and the executives I find are, are mostly male. I take a short break now. Um, Lauren, I want to remind everyone that this show is brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Going to run a short ad for them. And then we'll be back and we'll talk specifically about the six and the, the six women who were part of this program, the astronaut, female astronauts uh, that Lauren writes about in her wonderful new book, Six. So don't leave us anyone. We'll be back in a second. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can uh, subscribe at at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Lauren Grush, the author of The Six, wonderful new book about uh, the untold story of America's first women astronauts. So it was an untold story, Lauren, until you got hold in, until you got a hold of it. Tell us about how, how, t- t- tell me about the background to this book. How did you yourself find out about it, and why did you decide to write a book about it? Yeah, absolutely. So, relating to what I said earlier, uh, obviously one thing that's been really important to me as a, as a journalist reporting on space has been telling women's stories and also finding women in this field uh, that I feel like I can relate to and and share my experiences with. And so that really got me thinking about, you know, who were the first women to come before us? You know, who were the first female space journalists? Who were the first women in the space industry in general? And it really led me to find this group of women who, I'll be honest, I didn't really know much about to begin with. I knew of Sally Ride. I feel like I was Like most people in the general public, uh, I knew of her as the first American woman to go to space, but I didn't know much about her story beyond that or her mission or what made her the first American woman to go to space. Um, And I didn't realize that she'd come in with a group of, you know, six women who all could have easily been the first American woman to fly. And as I dug deeper and learned more about that selection process, it really got me thinking about what ifs and and it was also, you know, the fact that none of them, they, well, they, they have stories told about them, but I feel like their names aren't as much of a household name as Sally Ride. So I felt like it would be a great way to educate myself about what they had been, what they had done when they joined the agency and, and also to bring their stories to a wider uh, array of people in doing so. I mentioned Valiant Women at the beginning. We've done a lot of shows on the exclusion of one group or other. We did one on with the historian Matthew Delmont on the treatment of black soldiers, black American soldiers in World War II. Is this a military story? Am I wrong? Should I be thinking of this slightly different? It does have military elements. So, for instance, the main reason that women were excluded from joining the astronaut corps in the early days of the creation of NASA is that when requirements were set for who could become an astronaut, having jet military 
piloting experience was a part of that criteria. And at the time, women were banned from flying jets for the military. So the, it was a catch-22 situation. They just they could not gain the experience they needed in order to fly. And also at the time, NASA, I think, was just, you know, they were looking for men, essentially, for this program. And so it does have roots in the military, you know, industrial complex, as it were. Um, and it's mostly because that really was a part of the beginning days of the program. And we had to break free of this mentality that to be an astronaut, you needed to be kind of this hardened, uh, ultra-masculine uh, jet pilot. You know, we realized it depends on how you you design your spacecraft and ultimately how you train people. That's that's what makes them good astronauts. You mentioned the military industrial complex, a term, of course, that Eisenhower came up with in the 50s, in the late 50s. What happened between the late 50s and the uh, the period uh, where in the 60s and 70s when um, when NASA recognized that it needed to initiate champion uh, uh, women astronauts what took place. Was there a particular individual within the military, within politics or within NASA that recognized the error of its ways? Well, there were quite a few who definitely recognized it early on. They weren't necessarily successful. So in the book, I detail a somewhat famous group of women often referred to as the Mercury 13 um, that underwent the same testing that the Mercury 7, the first seven astronauts underwent. They passed those tests. They ultimately wanted to keep training for space, but their program was not a NASA sanctioned program. It wasn't a uh, they, they didn't have uh, an official, uh, you know, rule in order to, to keep training. So they were that training was cut short and they ultimately lobbied Congress in order to continue their training and also to convince lawmakers and NASA officials that it was important to send a woman to space and maybe even onto the moon as well. But at the time, you know, this was the 60s. We were in a dead heat with um, the Soviet Union in order to send the first uh, person to the surface of the moon. And so it was just considered a, a distraction by NASA and lawmakers from that ultimate goal, which was kind of, you know, it was considered a matter of national security and national pride. And so they really just didn't put in the effort to send a woman to the moon back then. And then when the Soviets ultimately beat us to space, they sent Valentina Tereshkova uh, to space, making her the first woman to fly, uh, you know, we brushed it off. NASA officials were stating, you know, there were rumors that Valentina had some kind of episode, that she was hysterical when she flew, and they made jokes about it. They really, you know, brushed it off as a publicity stunt. So it really just kind of showed what you know, what people thought about the idea of women flying at the time, it just wasn't serious. It wasn't something that we needed to really invest our time in. It was, you know, it was a stunt. It was a novelty. And then, you know, fast forward after the Apollo program happened into the 60s and 70s, we had uh, the civil rights movement and the feminism movement. And so NASA was starting to get questions about why it hadn't included women and people of color into the astronaut program by that point. And then also internally, there were people who were trying to create change as well. I detail a story about a woman named Ruth Bates Harris, who looked at the state of diversity inclusion within NASA and really came up with a scathing report about, you know, 
how women and people of color worked within the space agency and just the dismal numbers of who was employed and how they were employed. And she has this great line about, you know, something like there were three women have been to space. Two of them were monkeys or two of them were spiders. One of them was a monkey. Uh, so uh, it really just was becoming something that NASA couldn't ignore any longer. And then when the when they were coming up with the selection committee to find astronauts for the new space shuttle program, that's when they really put reaching out to women and people of color top of mind. We are speaking with Lauren Grush, the author of a wonderful new book, The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts. Uh, so Lauren, what happened? They decided to select some women and what well, they had a pool of 8,000, it's quite an extraordinary story. Yeah, and ultimately over 1,500 women applied and then they had to uh, narrow it down to finalist candidates. They got to around 200 or so. When was this? Sorry to interrupt. Oh, this was yeah. in the mid 1970s. So it would have, they, they selected the group in 1978. So in 1977, the year prior is when they uh, invited the group of finalist candidates to come down to Houston in order to uh, you know, talk with the selection committee, undergo testing. And so each of those finalists had to come for about a week and they underwent medical evaluations of you know, physicals, making sure that they were, you know, they passed a basic physical. They also had to undergo psychological evaluations. So this is my one of my favorite parts is they each had to talk to a good cop psychologist and a bad cop psychologist. And the good cop would ask you, in friendly tones about your mother and what animal you wanted to be if you ever came back uh, to life. And uh, the bad cop would ask you to count backwards by backwards from 100 by seven or name all of the U.S. presidents in order. And then when you ne inevitably got it wrong, you know, he would yell at you and proclaim it loudly and <laughs> see your reaction. Was the, uh, board, was the selection board all male or were there women on it too? There was one woman, Carolyn Huntoon was on it. She was the first to be a part of a selection committee, first woman. And she would actually go on and play a big role in the lives of the women who were selected. She kind of became their de facto mother hen. Um, but yes, yeah, she, she was on the selection committee. So her presence there did indicate that, you know, that they were serious about including women in, in this selection process. And it was the, the discussion. So ultimately, all those things that I described were a pass fail for the candidates. It was the they had an hour and a half long interview with the selection committee. And that's really when the the folks who were picking the, the astronauts determined who they thought would be the best. Did they job. do Did you think they did a good job? Did they do a good job? At picking the you, for the book, did you interview women who were rejected, who were disappointed? Who the no, I, I did there. research them, though, um, just in I didn't feel like I had time. You know, the book is already over 400 pages. And I actually say that I really could have written about uh, six books because for each woman, you know, she each they each had a very amazing and complicated life and career. So I did read about the, some of the women who, who applied and didn't make it. But um, I didn't speak to them personally, no. Some of the women, unfortunately, are no longer around. Everybody knows the, the story of Judy Resnick, who, who, who died uh, in 1986 uh, uh, in, a, in an accident in space. Did you talk to some of the others who are still around? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I talked with their family members as well, and also uh, plenty of their former colleagues and, and male astronauts that they went to space with too. So there are plenty who are still with us. Um, the, the living members of the six are Kathy Sullivan, Anna Fisher, Ray Seddon, and Shannon Lucid. And, um, you know, it's they've also been very generous in telling their stories over the years. So there's quite a rich history to draw from uh, as well. In your conversations, in the analysis and in your research and in the writing, did you find that these six women, did they have, quote unquote, female characteristics uh, or is that uh, the wrong way of thinking about it? Well, I, I, I mean, they all had, I guess, what they would call female characteristics. As astronauts, not obviously as people. I mean, did, did... I guess I'm confused about the question. <laughs> well, the, 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 the question is, they, 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 they clearly were doing this not just for marketing reasons. They wanted to find more diverse astronauts who would bring more qualities and skills to the profession. Did, did that happen? I mean, all the previous astronauts were male, and then you had these six who you write about. Did they bring other kinds of qualities, empathy, uh, other qualities which maybe some of the men previously lacked, or is that the wrong way of thinking about it? I think it might be the wrong way of thinking about it. I think every human brings their own unique quality, whether you're a man or a woman. I don't think, for instance, something like empathy is uniquely female. Um, I think what this class definitely brought was new perspectives for sure. I mean, one of the big things about the women joining is that they were able to join because of a new role that NASA created known as the mission specialist role. And so earlier I had mentioned that, you know, a strict criteria was being able to have jet piloting experience. But then with this new group, they created a new uh, position where you didn't have to have that piloting experience. You just needed to have a uh, degree in a STEM field. So that opened up the door to engineers, scientists, medical doctors, uh, a whole range of people who didn't necessarily need those, those strict, that strict resume that, that came before them. And so that ultimately allowed for a much more diverse group of folks to join the program. And yes, I imagine, you know, not having that military background definitely brought in much a different dynamic for sure in terms of who who could be an astronaut during this time when one thinks of female soldiers of course and the debates about whether women should be in law uh, should be in battle uh, some people argue that men are stronger than women and so on and so forth um what are the qualities are there broader qualities you think that are required as an astronaut i mean obviously you need to be physically strong and disciplined um can one generalize about the kinds of qualities whether they're whether it's a male or a female astronaut that astronauts uniquely require i uh, i think what's great about this group is showing that there really isn't one perfect thing that you need in order to be an astronaut you know just look at the backgrounds of the six they're all very different uh medical doctors chemists uh, engineer, astrophysicist, you know, uh, an oceanographer, geologist, they they really show that there's no one true resume in order to, to get to space. I would say probably the biggest quality anyone needs when being an astronaut is just the desire to learn and to be focused and to, you know, 
glean all of this amazing, incredible knowledge and expertise, you know, I think that really anybody is capable of doing that. Um, and I think we're learning as we, you know, move through the space industry and things evolve that they're, you know, even strength, you know, that was something that I felt, you know, that a lot of people thought you needed to have. And while there is some kind of strength that needs to be had in terms of how we design spacesuits and, and uh, spacecraft now, it's ultimately how we design these technologies and how we design these spacecraft that really determine who can fly them. So if we design our spacecraft and spacesuits with a much wider population in mind, then it's it really just becomes a, an engineering challenge to, to open that up to more people. When one looks through the six women selected, um, the one thing that's striking to me at least is uh, there were no women of color. Was this an issue when they selected the six or do we live in very different times now? One would imagine if they did the same thing now, it's unthinkable that they would come up with six white women. Well, I think it just goes to show that it was an even harder climb for women of color during this era, right? So even when they relaxed the criteria to allow women into the program, I'm sure it was, you know, they, they, they didn't necessarily need advanced degrees in order to be astronauts, but clearly all of these women did have advanced degrees of some kind. So it was clearly preferred. And I think, you know, for women of color at that time, it was just much more difficult than than uh, white women in order to obtain those degrees. So, you know, I think it's just indicative that, you know, even though NASA was making strides, the world still had a ways to go for everyone to kind of catch up and we're, and we're still trying to get there too. I remember the, the movie and of course the book Hidden Figures, which uh, focuses on uh, African-American uh, women involved in uh, military uh, research. Were there, I mean, in terms of your research, were there African-American women who could have qualified back in 78? Oh, absolutely. They could have qualified, but it's whether or not they wanted to apply or if they had the criteria that, uh, you know, NASA was ultimately looking for. So when we generalize today, 40 years later, more than 40, 45 years later after this this program, what, what are the conclusions? What do you think uh, this untold story of America's first women astronauts teaches us today in 2023 in terms of the opportunities and the challenges? Well, first off, I think it goes back to what we were discussing earlier that, uh, you know, the idea of someone being the quote unquote right stuff, that there really isn't, a, you know, a limited definition for that in terms of who can be an astronaut. Like I mentioned, all of them had extremely different backgrounds. And so they're, they're just a great example that there's no one true path to space. I think they also demonstrated that we might not have been as far along uh, in terms of our thinking back when they were selected. So one of the big uh, themes of the book were the questions that the women were asked and the level of scrutiny that they were under when they were selected being the first women. They obviously had a lot of press attention on them and the questions that the press asked them really were uh, indicative of, you know, some of the unenlightened attitudes of the time. So, you know, when the women, uh, like the mothers of the group, you know, they were constantly asked if they could, they were qualified to be astronauts because, you know, while they had children at home, but obviously their male colleagues were not asked the same thing, even though they were fathers too. And then also, if you look at the, the 
questions that Sally Ride was asked, you know, before she went into space, whether she wept in the simulator when it broke or if she how she was going to handle being in close proximity with men in space, you know, just questions that no one would think to ask now. And so, you know, it just I think it really is illustrative that we had a had a far way to go even when we were allowing women into the program. And hopefully, you know, because these women came first, they were they paved the way and they made it a lot easier for the women that came after them. Final question, Lauren. Uh, as I said, we did a show with um, with Ashley Vance on colonizing space and the, the entrepreneurs, the Musks, the Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos yeah. of the world who- It's a great book. Yeah, who are pioneering this. It also reflects the privatization, if not of space. I mean, the title of his book is When the Heavens Went on Sale. That certainly has a critical element. But the way in which the Musks and the Bezoses of the world have established almost alternatives to NASA uh, as, as public bodies driving, financing, organizing and the American uh, the the American voyaging into space. What does the book, The Six, tell us, do you think, about the value? I, I know you're, and, and this is probably a, a softball question for you, given that your parents were both NASA engineers, but what does this book tell us about the value of NASA itself and a reminder of the importance of public institutions in such a critical enterprise? Well, I think... You know, a lot of people are being introduced to space nowadays through the likes of Elon Musk and SpaceX and maybe Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos. And so they might think that, you know, the space industry got to where it is today, you know, just a few years ago. But the truth is NASA really did pave the way for these private companies uh, to grow and to thrive. You know, a lot of credit is given to Elon and SpaceX for creating the reusable rocket, but you know, the shuttle was the first reusable vehicle. Now it wasn't fully reusable and neither is the Falcon 9, but it is kind of the precursor to this reusable movement uh, in, in rocketry. And so I think it's just, it's nice to remember that there is a very rich history that NASA built of spaceflight and it's ultimately the jumping off and the platform that these commercial companies have been able to use in order to grow and to thrive today.